This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in engrave.io shop with the code REALVISION. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Hi there, everyone. A belated Happy New Year from me. It's my first time back on the platform in 2024. I hope you are all extremely well. I'm joining you as usual from London, a very chilly London. And we are in for a huge, huge treat today because today we have a special guest. His name is Pradeep Ravi Kumar. He is a professor of machine learning at Carnegie Mellon University. And he's here, of course, to talk to us about AI. We've all watched this AI moment that we've been living through for the last two, three years in amazement with wide-eyed wonder, essentially. Um, I want to dive deep into that with Pradeep in this session. We'll look at where things are heading in 2024, how things are going to develop, the moves we think some of the big players, including OpenAI, will make, OpenAI will make. Um, but we'll go deeper than that. I want to look with Pradeep at the issues that form the center of his work. I think it's fair to say that he believes that we're at a crucial threshold moment for machine intelligence. Uh, and I want to dive into that and what it really means, what it means for where all this is heading and the impact it can have on the real economy and our lives. So without further ado, Pradeep, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Yeah, I'm I'm doing great. Uh, also chilly in Pittsburgh, but uh, still doing great. Uh, right. Thanks for having yeah. me. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I hope we can both stay warm during this conversation, warm enough. So look, let's start by just learning a tiny little bit about your background and your research work right now, because that will set us up for everything that will follow. Yeah, so my research actually um, dialing back 20 years was in statistical machine learning. So this is actually all of AI these days involves statistical machine learning. And this is something that really picked up steam in the 90s. And during my PhD in the 2000s, that's where we laid a lot of the foundations for the statistical machine learning in terms of figuring out statistical associations between a lot of data and making predictions and so on. So um, all those foundations are right now being used in all the state-of-the-art AI models. Um, and so fast forward to the present, so now I'm really looking forward to the next uh, evolution 
of AI beyond statistical machine learning. And I'm sure we will talk a lot more about that today. Yes, in, indeed we will. And that taps into this big thematic distinction that we'll get into between statistical and symbolic approaches to machine intelligence, because I think it's it's fascinating and it's so crucial for, for everyone out there to understand if they want to think about where this is heading across the next few years. But let's start with where we're at right now. Uh, I mean, it goes without saying, for most of us out there, the AI moment we're living in now, chat GPT, mid-journey, generative AI, all of that, it's just, it came as a huge surprise. Where do you think this is heading across 2024? Because so far we've had huge excitement and a degree of wonder with the capabilities and the outputs of these models. It feels like, you know, we, we've done that now. And the questions are more around, or the questions I'm asking myself are more around, how does this have an impact on the real economy? Where does it head across 2024 in terms of jobs, economic impact, and so on? How are you looking at that? And how are you looking at the role of the big players, you know, OpenAI and DeepMind in all of that? Can ChatGPT have an impact on the real economy? Or is it just not ready to? Right. Um, I think yes and no. Um, if you think about uh, ChatGPT and large language models, um, they are very could great even on figuring out statistical associations between word sequences and understanding essentially just collection of words. But with the more modern multimodal uh, foundation models, they can also understand images, even audio uh, and all of these things together. And so basically an upshot of this is that if we have data that consists of images and text and audio, then we are going to have these AI models that are going to understand what we want from them. And I think this is going to be a big unlock because um, if you think in terms of how, let's just say, we participate in the economy, let's say there is a manager and he wants, he or she wants um, their direct reports to do something, they typically convey this using audio, using text, uh, potentially images, right? Maybe we communicate using memes. But the, the interesting thing is that if you can have AI models that can understand this, then they, that, that's a potentially huge unlock. Um, and so I think what we might see over the next year are what I would say are things both above and below these large foundation models where you can have things above where you could basically have these these uh, large language models suggest certain tools to use um, and then you could have other wrappers that can use those tools and then you can also have things below where it can clean up how you interact with the with these foundation models and so I imagine that there would be a lot of companies uh, in that space that can um, help us do that. But at the same time, I would say that it's not, uh, not all of the things that we want to do take the form of analyzing text and images and audio, um, right? So I think 
that's going to be a realization that we are going to also see. So there's going to be these positives that I mentioned, but there also could be potential negatives, or I don't want to say disillusionment, but because I think there are going to be other solutions along the lines of what I'm going to talk about later on. But people are going to realize that just the large language models are not going to work if you have data that is not just images and text. Right. So, yeah, I mean, essentially what ChatGPT and other large, other similar tools fueled by large language models can do is understand your text inputs, your language inputs and spew out some new, some new text. <laughs> and there are instances in the workplace where that is useful, right? Right. Um, do you think that that can eat jobs yet? Um, technology has always, so one perspective of technology is that it takes energy and uh, transforms it into something instrumental. And by and large, if you think about, I guess, the industrial revolution and 100 years back, a lot of it was in the physical world. but if you think about even our jobs, right? So for instance, we are communicating actually uh, you know, on video over the internet right now. And so a lot of our jobs don't actually involve the physical world. Though again, there is some physical infrastructure for the internet. A lot of it just involves the world of ideas. A lot of our jobs involve ideas and moving ideas around. And there is an interesting question on whether you can take energy and transform it in an instrumental way to move ideas, not just atoms. And if you think about a lot of the jobs we do, including personal computers, and you know we have Microsoft Word, PowerPoint, a lot of it are tools, technology that help us do that. But it's basically a lot of steps, very laborious. Um, and we can think of a lot of uh, the new wave AI models as essentially simplifying those steps. Um, and once we do that, that's such a huge unlock for humanity that I think it'll create more jobs rather than just destroy jobs. Because there are many companies that just won't be feasible using basically our current set of technologies. And so for instance, if I have a very, very enterprising um, entrepreneur in India, say, and they do not have enough funding to have a team of 10 um, people. So this is a company that's never going to exist. But with these tools, maybe it exists. So I wouldn't think of that as, so let's just say they start this company with two people instead of 10 people. I wouldn't say that it, you lost eight jobs. I would say you gained two jobs because that's now a company that wouldn't have existed. And in fact, if you look at the downstream effects, um, then that would actually create even more jobs. So I think uh, I'm pretty excited about the possibility of essentially using energy to, to change things in highly interesting instrumental ways. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, and that's such an interesting perspective because, you know, one of the big questions I'm asked and one of the refrains we constantly hear about chat GPT right now is, oh, what about my job? Any knowledge worker, you know, many knowledge workers, what about my job? I'm concerned about my job. Is it going to eat my, you know, my task in the workplace? Um, it doesn't feel as though ChatGPT is is sort of competent enough or right. multimodal enough, right, to just eat an entire person's job, even if their job is pretty is is essentially knowledge based. Would you agree? Absolutely. Uh, and this would also tie into some of the discussions we're going to have later on, where I think a lot of what ChatGPT and these large language models are going to do, I think are best understood as productivity enhancers. They are not going to be end-to-end -end solutions um, because we cannot trust those as end-to-end -end solutions. So we, for instance, Microsoft has this GitHub Copilot where it suggests um, code snippets based on various um, specifications you may have. And it even takes your existing code and tries to complete it forward. But you cannot trust it completely. So you, you, what I find is that it enhances the productivity of a programmer by 2x, 3x, but it cannot replace the programmer. So you still need the programmer. And um, will we ever get to a place where we can use this end to end? Uh, not in the near future. Yeah, that, I mean, and that's a, that's a really interesting perspective and potentially a reassuring one for many people out there. Um, and it has to align with, certainly aligns with mine, and it has to align with most people's, you know, anecdotal experience of using, for example, ChatGPT, which is exactly that. You know, it, it feels like a sort of jetpack for the mind. It feels as though it can enhance your productivity, but you, you can't just set it you can't just set it off and and have end-to-end -end replacement of entire entire right. tasks. So actually, if you look at the word co-pilot, Microsoft actually gave a lot of thought to what do we call this device? And they are calling it a co-pilot. So uh, it's very clear to the people using the system that this is something that is a companion, that's something that's going to help you but it cannot be something that is end to end and you cannot trust it fully. But at the same time, um, you can kind of interact with it in a very different way and so on. So you can kind of learn how to interact with it, but it's still a co-pilot. And I think uh, that was very smart nomenclature that exactly captures yeah. what it is. Yeah, yeah, I think that was a very sort of wise choice of words um, and an accurate one. And so you have that sense of it being um, these tools being a productivity enhancer, sort of letting us think further, faster, I suppose. Um, and I also love your perspective on the way it can help create jobs, because as you say, you know, you might have a company that needs five employees, um, but it can't possibly afford that. Well, now it, it could have two employees plus a whole lot of AI. Um, and you haven't lost three jobs, you've created two because that company otherwise would not have existed. So do you see already where we're at now with these large language models and tools like ChatGPT? Do you see that sort of democratizing 
startup culture and the ability to to do your own thing and start your own thing you know that's part of the that's part of the path we're on that i find interesting absolutely i think this is something that um we can think of as there are certain tools um microsoft had wanted to do this with just computing itself so this was actually bill gates vision which is that he wanted to bring the power of computing to individuals. He wanted to democratize access to computing to individuals. And of course, we have gone far from that. We now have smart devices um, rather than just desktops sitting on our, uh, uh, on our tables. But now if we move that forward, we not only will have computing devices, but we will also have programs, um, ways to interact rather, with these computing devices that is more democratized. So we can think of programs as one way in which we communicate with these machines, these personal computers. And this was a language like the priests of your, where they have speaking in, you know, strange languages uh, to these uh, strange machines. And we needed to we needed to intermediate our interactions with these machines through these priests, which are these programmers. Mm -hmm. But if you can allow normal uh, non-programmers to also interact with these machines, that, wouldn't that actually accelerate or uh, be actually a more natural next step of Bill Gates' vision of having computing devices at the uh, hands of everybody, but also in a way where they can interact with it fully. I can ask my smartphone to do certain things that I have in my mind, but I'm presently not able to do so because I won't be able to create an app. But now if I can do that, isn't that amazing? So I think uh, that's actually a very, very uh, exciting frontier, I think. It is hugely exciting, isn't it? And I mean, if you're roughly our age, uh, right. You obviously remember the kind of the whole, you know, the birth of the App Store and back in the sort of early 2010s, I guess it was when every third friend you had was 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 creating their own app. Um, and the, the constraint on that for many people is that they couldn't code. You know, everyone had an idea for an app they wanted to make. Most people can't code, so they simply couldn't make that app. Right. My feeling is we're removing that constraint. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, or at least reducing that constraint a little bit. So it won't be as simple as our grandma being able to code an app uh, just from scratch. So we are still not there yet, but we are definitely reducing the barriers, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the potential for a sort of flourishing of creativity around computing is huge because right. to a much greater extent, it feels to me, you know, if you can imagine it, you can have a go at creating it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, whereas that simply wasn't true before. That's uh, right. Everyone on, on Twitter or X, as we're now supposed to call it, is excited today about the launch of this new, like R1 rabbit device, you right. know, this little device that it is like an AI companion. There's also the humane AI pin. Right. Uh, so we're seeing this incredible, the burgeoning of this of this wave of innovation around these AI companion devices. 
Do you think that's going to become a bigger part of people's of the story in 2024 and a bigger part of people's relationship with AI across the coming year and beyond? Um, I love the vision at the very least, but I'm a little bit skeptical, I have to say. Um, so I, I love the vision of reducing friction. So Apple is very good at this, where um, many people completely underestimate uh, and underrate um, friction uh, as, that prevents us from various tasks. And if you think about Apple, they try to make these devices so that the friction to using those devices is reduced. And if you think in terms of um, natural language interfaces, that reduces friction. So if I want the computer to open a particular app, instead of me going, opening the computer and then trying to find the app, if you can just say, please open, you know, DoorDash, and it opens it, that's great. And simple things like this, I think, can be enabled. But I think if we uh, wanted to be a full-fledged companion in terms of saying, hey, book me a flight to London at the end of this month, um, I'm not sure we are there yet. So I, I think... If we dial down our expectations for these companions, I think we are definitely going to get something. But I think to have a completely um, uh, have a computing device that is going to be completely uh, disintermediated uh, in the in the sense of all interactions that we have with these, uh, if it's completely going to be intermediated by natural language and audio. I don't think we are there yet. I mean, Amazon tried to do this with Alexa, um, where they tried to, and Alexa is pretty good, right? So voice recognition is pretty good. They tried to get people to do various things with Alexa and they failed because there's still the just amount of friction. It's not perfect. Um, and if it's not perfect, I don't want it to book a flight, right? So <laughs> I think that's essentially the problem. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think they're going to have to play with kind of voice and audio and screens quite a lot to find the perfect combination right. of the two. Because that right. you know, when I when I book a flight, I want to be able to see the options in front of me. It's no good just right. telling me what they are. Right. You know, right. I think that those those details are crucial. It's going to be. Fa I mean, my other concern for those startups like Humane and the the the, the little rabbit device that's going on now is aren't they going to get crushed by apple like when apple puts a large language model on its devices and can just roll that out across a billion people don't you think absolutely i think if apple or google uh, for that matter they do have this gemini nano that they already plan to push onto their pixels or pixel pros um, that's really the next frontier in the sense of having um, these powerful models on our computing devices uh, natively uh, so that they don't need to communicate through the internet through some server and pay some cost and so on. Um, once we have that, then it is, I think, a worthwhile question to say, do I need a pin or do I need a completely different device? Uh, probably not. Uh, I, I would definitely agree. Uh, but um, on the other hand, 
companies like Google and Apple are not going to roll out half-baked products, right? So they won't roll out something unless it's close to perfect, especially Apple. They love to reduce the friction, but they're not going to re uh, release something unless the friction is completely gone. And so I think there's still some time for a company like Apple to actually release something. So I think in the next two, three years, these companies have, I think, uh, free reign. Maybe they even get acquired by Apple for all we know. So there's still, I think, a good space to explore uh, potentially. Because the dream with Apple is some sort of vastly upgraded Siri, and maybe they, you know, they don't call it Siri, that right. is a true on-device virtual companion that just knows everything about you and right. you can talk to it. It's like a counselor, it's an assistant, it's a friend. Um, but you think, you, do you think that Apple have not done that yet because it's so hard to perfect? And we know they're a perfectionist company. Exactly. Uh, that's really what is stopping them right now. Um, it is always possible to roll out a half-baked product right now, but Apple won't be the one to do it. Uh, and so they are going to wait. Uh, and just even after coming up with the product, they're going to uh, experiment with it and from a technological standpoint, we are nowhere near uh, the, the place where uh, a company like Apple would be happy with the product. So we are just not there. Now, speaking of the next frontier for machine intelligence, let's really dive into this because I know that fundamental to your work is this idea that to really move beyond where we are now, and to really see an impact on the real economy, sort of a deep economic impact. Um, we need to move beyond the focus on the statistical approach to machine learning that sort of governs this moment. So this can start to feel somewhat technical. It doesn't actually have to be that technical really, and you explain it so brilliantly. So let's get into all of that. Just Let's start by talking about what we even mean by, you know, statistical and symbolic approaches and what it is about the current moment that makes it the statistical moment. Um, and that means uh, diving in a little bit to the history of, of AI, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, uh, I think a great point to talk about the history of AI. So if you dial back all the way to 1950s, um, when we had these powerful computing devices, people thought, oh, that our next thing is to just build AI. If we have powerful computers, how hard is it gonna be to build AI, right? Uh, is what they thought. So the first wave of AI was using what are called symbolic approaches. They are so-called because if you think about any beliefs we may have or any statements we may have, so for instance, Let's say David is a great journalist at Real Vision. So this is a statement and I can basically have various symbols to represent this statement. There's an entity named David, uh, who's a person and who's a journalist who uh, works at Real Vision. Uh, and so all of these are, I can have symbols to represent this knowledge and then I can also have reasoning to go from certain propositions to certain other propositions. So for instance, given all of these statements, I would then perhaps have another proposition that says David does great interviews. 
And so that's a reasoning step where I go to a completely different proposition and go from A to B. And these were the kinds of programs that people were building uh, early on. And we can think of these as largely rule-based systems where these rules operate on symbols. And the heyday of these were actually in the 80s and including in the 90s, where uh, one prototypical instance is called Dendrol, where what it was was it was um, given compounds, so let's say hydrogen peroxide, H2O2. So given various measurements, I think spectrographic measurements, um, maybe I want to know uh, the composition of this compound. Uh, it's two hydrogen atoms, two oxygen atoms. And they built a system that was better than organic chemists. Um, and the way they did this was using a bunch of rules. So they had various symbols related to the measurements. They had various symbols related to the atoms. And they um, uh, related the measurements to the atoms and so on. And so given the measurements, these looking at these rules, they'll say, oh, I think it's hydrogen peroxide. And there were these things called expert systems that were these gigantic rule-based systems sitting on top of symbols that people were building in the 80s that, again, um, the similarity to the present is uh, quite interesting where the companies and industry were spending millions upon millions of dollars to build these large-scale systems, and people thought that this was the future of AI. And it turned out not quite. Um, interestingly, Deep Blue that beat Kasparov uh, in chess was another instance of such symbolic uh, approaches where there the symbols related both positions and particular actions that you can take. So I think there are 64, um, 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 I forget how many exact moves you can make from any given position, but what you can do is that you can roll out. So I will play you know, a particular position, then the opponent could play any of other 64 different possible positions. And I can just completely roll this out till the game finishes and then see if I move my you know, knight to this position, then do I win? And I can just roll this out, but this obviously will take too long. And so they had various tricks to reduce basically the search. And this is how, basically Deep Blue beat Casper. It was all very kind of rule-based approaches. Um, but like I said, um, this kind of fizzled out because this was too laborious because where are you going to get the symbols? Where are you going to get the rules, right? Um, but then where there was a little bit of despair in the late 80s came this new field called machine learning. Where, let's take the Dendral example. So I have certain measurements, spectrographic measurements, and then I have what the compounds are. And instead of having organic chemists provide rules and what the symbols are, what are atoms and whatnot, what if I just give a training data that says that, okay, here are the measurements, here is a compound. Here's are the measurements, here's a compound. I just gave thousands and thousands of such mappings and let the machine learn how to associate bits of the input um, there are statistical associations between parts of the input and with parts of the output, and it will automatically learn that. And so this was the statistical learning phase, the second wave of AI um, that really uh, picked up steam in the 90s and 2000s. And um, 
if you look at 2010s, there was a even further boost in terms of these architectures called deep neural networks that together with the foundation that people built really turbocharged the statistical revolution. So that's where we are presently uh, in terms of where AI is. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, it's just such a fascinating and expertly delivered, very brief history of machine, in machine intelligence. And so, my, so you have, you know, the initial first wave, which, as you say, almost grew with the birth of computing itself. Right. There was an almost naive optimism that we've created computing. It can't be long until we create a human-like intelligence. And the right. route to that is, is via symbolic representation. Am I right in understanding that part of the reason that fizzled out is because that symbolic approach is can be effective for highly structured sort of rule-bound domains, like for example, chess. You know, it's a, it's a very structured rule-bound game. I mean, there's literally a set of rules. And, and, and you can sort of hard code those rules in. It's pretty laborious. Right. And then and then apply just brute force computational power to get answers. But if you think about, for example, how do we get a car to drive around, you know, the open road? There's no set of, you know, I mean, there's loot, there, there's no strict set of rules for dealing with all that elements. It's a, it's an extremely fluid environment, an unstructured right. environment. And that's where the symbolic approach tends to break down. That's my like amateur understanding, <laughs> amateur compared to yours, understanding of, of this. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Um, so where the symbolic approaches were basically incomplete um, for complicated domains. Uh, incomplete meaning that they were not able to capture all of the things that are going on. Like for instance, you talked about cars driving. So there are a lot of things that are going on in terms of the environment and can you have symbols and rules that capture everything? If you can't, then it's incomplete. Uh, that's number one. Number two, the rules may not also be what we call sound in the sense that I may come up with a rule that says that, um, oh, um, if you see a car in the other lane, then don't switch lanes or something. But in certain cases, you may need to violate that. If let's just say another car is just coming speeding behind you, you're just going to switch lanes no matter what, right? So there are many instances like that where rules can be wrong. Uh, so they are mostly right, but they are not going to be perfect. And so that's another big part of why these symbolic approaches failed. There is also, you talked about chess, right? Where with the deep blue system, it is very, very computationally intensive to roll things out 
in terms of, okay, so I will play this and the opponent will play that and, you know, what's going to happen. And so they needed a supercomputer for this. But these days, using statistical approaches, we have very simple, very small programs on our computers that are even better than Magnus Carlsen, for instance, um, or any human uh, uh, chess player. So it turns out that even in highly closed domain settings, it is computationally uh, better to use statistical approaches. And so for all these reasons, um, but primarily what you, I think, so nicely talked about uh, is where the statistical revolution really won out. And that's where every, pretty much every AI system that we are presently using uses the statistical machine learning engine. Yeah. And I remember the huge excitement when um, Deep Blue beat Kasparov, and it's kind of mind-blowing now when you yeah, load a, a chess program on your on your phone and realize that it, it's it's more powerful than any human chess player has ever been. Right. Um, that was kind of one of the high points for the symbolic approach, certainly in right. the popular consciousness. Chat GPT, I, I think it's fair to say, is one of the high points for for all of us and in the in the public conversation for the statistical approach, right? Because large right. language models are, an, are represent the statistical approach. That's right. Um, so yeah, if you think about uh, these large language models, the way they work is that I have a sequence of words, and I need some way to compactly represent the sequence of words. Um, so let's just say the sequence of words is an entire novel, right? But we need some way to just summarize that in some fixed length storage. But then given this, I also need associations between this and what will come next. And so this is basically figuring out statistical associations on steroids, where I want to compactly represent a sequence itself, I need associations between parts of the sequence. And then I'm going to figure out statistical associations between um, word sequences and uh, what's going to come next. And this turns out to be very good with things like grammar, because uh, that's basically what grammar is, right? Where you see all of these things and uh, what should come next. There are certain rules that we have. But these rules are, again, quite complicated. Um, sometimes you follow them, sometimes you don't. It's complicated in many ways. And um, we presently uh, are using these large language models to automatically figure it out just from statistical associations or a large amount of data. So you have these models essentially learning about the deep statistical relationships between words. That's and right. even parts of words as we, you know, use them in the English language, trained on this vast amount of text. And that right. just gives them, an, I mean, people have been surprised at how competent that makes these models at producing language that pretty much sounds as though it could have been produced by a human being. I mean, that took even experts like you by surprise, right? Absolutely. I think uh, nobody expected the uh, the statistical association-based models to be so good. We always knew that with bigger models and with more data, these, these models would get better. So that there was no doubt about. 
But the capability that we are seeing, that has really caught even researchers by surprise, definitely. Uh, what it suggests is that um, a lot of, um, I guess, statistical associations capture a lot of the things that we care about, um, but not all, um, as I'm sure we will come to. Yeah, well, exactly. And let's let's come to that because, you know, I won't give the game away for you, but essentially you believe that to move to the next big, to, to really advance from where we are now, and in particular to see an impact on, on the economy and to make this AI moment truly useful and impactful, we need to move beyond this statistical approach moment. Um, talk to us about that. Yeah. Why are we hitting the limits? What limits are we hitting when it comes to the statistical approach? And why do we need to move on to get to a more useful place? And what does that look like? Right. Um, so if you think in terms of a lot of a formal knowledge, let's think about, let's say, number theory or algebra, uh, linear algebra, and so on. So some of our advanced math courses, then a lot of it is relationships among different things, right? Um, relationships between numbers, relationship between symbols. And it is not always the best thing to talk about this knowledge in terms of statistical associations. So for instance, number theory, right? So I may have various theorems involving primes, for instance. And um, it is not always possible to represent this knowledge by saying that, okay, so if I see one and then a plus and then a, another one and it equals, then the next thing should be two. Now, this is an important uh, number theoretic fact, but it is not always possible to just represent all of number theory just using these statistical associations. It is also not efficient to do so. Um, so it's both a capacity as well as uh, efficiency reasons. Um, let me actually give a, 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 an a example, an application that we in our present day may want. So let's say I'm a hospital system and I have a little bit of unstructured, a little bit of structured data in terms of uh, what my doctors are doing, um, what are treatments they are giving, how the patients are fed, how much it costs, uh, how much the hospital is making. And if you think in terms of what the hospital administrator might want, they may want certain insights in terms of um, what are certain procedures that are costing the most or are the least cost effective uh, uh, or things that are most helpful for patient outcomes, who are the doctors that are really good. Uh, these kinds of insights have numeric reasoning uh, that, that is critical uh, 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 to make, to, to, to come up with those conclusions. Uh, or let's just say I'm um, a company and I have a whole bunch of branches, uh, a bunch of shoe stores. Let's say I'm Nike and I have a bunch of shoe stores and I want to look at the results of all of the shoe stores to figure out what are things that are working, what are things that are not. And so here I need to do numeric reasoning that is much, much more complicated than just simple statistical associations between symbols like numbers. And right now, if you're gonna use chat GPT or large language models to surface these, it's gonna hallucinate. It's going to 
think of statistical associations that could be interesting, but by and large, are not going to be useful. So what we really need is essentially the kind of, I think it's interesting to think about human, the kind of human uh, culture itself, the, the, our scientific uh, enterprise itself. We have developed things like algebra and uh, other number theory and so on quite late. Right? We had developed language 70,000 years ago. But, um, and if you think in terms of associations between bits of images and whatnot, that actually goes back to potentially the Cambrian explosion millions of years ago. So all species have vision, for instance. And what is vision but statistical associations between all of the pieces of the image? That's the only way they, a lion is able to say, hey, there is a gazelle, I'm going to go, I should go and eat it, right? Uh, it has these capabilities, but it wasn't able to develop algebra, right? So we need this additional capability to do the kinds of things that companies want. And there is a reason, you know, lions can develop algebra. Similarly, I think we uh, need to have this additional component that does this kind of numeric, symbolic reasoning and calculations that we can rely on. Right, right. So to make this truly, you know, for many corporations, many startups, to make this truly useful and therefore to have a, that kind of big impact on the economy that people are talking about right now when it comes to AI, you know, in layman's terms, we need to make it good at maths. It needs to be able to handle numbers. You know, yes. I, I'm kind of Unilever. I have like endless data about sales and kind of uh, supply chains and all this. And right now, a large language model can't can't handle that. I mean, we can all step to chat GPT and, and see for ourselves that it, it can't really do maths That's at right. all. Um, how do we, and this is where some of your work, you can talk a little bit about some of your work. What It sounds like what you're driving at is essentially a new fusion of the symbolic approach and the statistical approach in terms that we ordinary mortals can understand. How are we going to do that? How can that work? And then I'm interested on your thoughts on who is going to do it, who the winners could be here, because we're talking about a big next evolution for AI with potentially right. massive rewards for the players that get it right. Absolutely. And, and so here, I think, so if you think about the first wave that is symbolic, the second wave of AI that is statistical, we need a third wave of AI that is both statistical and symbolic. Some people call it neurosymbolic by associating neuro to the statistical revolution. And um, so what we really need are the statistical symbolic or neurosymbolic uh, third wave of AI that combines both of these. So one way to think about this is um, maybe again, going back hundreds of thousands of years right, to, to, to human evolution. So we have, a prefrontal cortex that evolved at the very end. And if you think about other parts of our, of our brain, our neural architecture, that's basically what our statistical models are. It's all about statistical associations between bits of the input. And we are, our older parts of the brain are already doing that right now. But 
if you think about the uh, the evolution of our own brains, uh, mammalian brains, then around I, I would say um, a few hundred thousand years ago, uh, bits and pieces of the prefrontal cortex started getting involved. And I think um, if you look at actually Homo sapiens, I think it was maybe um, again a few hundred thousand years ago where it fully developed. So what is the difference? Why do we need the prefrontal cortex? Um, it's basically symbolic reasoning, sitting on top of the kind of statistical associations. Um, so what we really need to build is the prefrontal cortex that's kind of, uh, we can evolve it at the end, but now I think it's the right time. Uh, where we now have evolved the other parts of our brain, done a reasonable job with that, but we need to have this more symbolic element. And I, I think a lot of the architectures that people are exploring are along similar lines where you actually have something that sits on top and that synthesizes that we can think of it as a hierarchical architecture that you have a more symbolic module that sits on top of this um, statistical module and that synthesizes things into symbolic elements and does reasoning with it. So a, a lot of this people are still developing. So I can tell you that um, DARPA is investing heavily in this, uh, in third wave AI. So I'm part of basically, so DARPA has funded my group as well. Uh, and they have funded a, uh, a few groups uh, all over the country to push this neurosymbolic AI forward. DARPA is always forward thinking. So whatever DARPA is doing, it's going to be the state of the art in a few years, in two, three years. So you're already seeing, so you talked about the rapid uh, companion. So if you look at the, um, uh, at the presentation that the CEO made, he, you may have heard the phrase neurosymbolic. Um, yeah. And you get, what I would say is that you are going to see this phrase neurosymbolic more and more in successful companies because you do need this third wave to actually build something useful. And um, really that's in, I would say in a year or so, you're going to get uh, again, I don't know how much Rapid is doing in, in a neurosymbolic direction, but I think in a couple of years, that by 2025, you're definitely going to see companies use this neurosymbolic technology in some way, at least. Do you think this is the direction OpenAI and DeepMind are pushing in? Because we all noticed at the end of last year, um, you know, DeepMind's Gemini multimodal model is apparently very mathematically competent. Then there was some ruckus about how much of that demo was a little bit massaged or faked, um, right. but it does seem to have maths competence. Have they achieved that by, by as you say, kind of bolting on uh, some form of symbolic reasoning to the underlying statistical model? Not yet. Um, right. The, 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 way, uh, the way that some of uh, these companies, again, they, there could be different approaches that they are taking, is so one example which actually Google came out with a, a year or so ago is called Chain of Thought, where um, it is, if I think in terms of, oh, one plus one equals two, it is good at figuring out just from the statistical associations what should come next. 
But if I have a long word puzzle and I'm asking it for the answer, it won't be able to do that just from statistical associations. But if I ask it to go step by step, then each step it may have seen uh, from the statistical associations in the data in terms of what should be the next step. And by forcing the model to go step by step, you can actually do a better job than um, what it was doing previously, but it's still not a this kind of a neurosymbolic thing where it's not still not something you can trust. And uh, so right now, these companies are still in the statistical uh, wave and not the neurosymbolic wave, primarily because there are many, many ways to do that and it's still not fully clear. Uh, we are building the foundations of that. So I would say, but things are moving so fast. So I think it's still a year out, I would say, in terms of how to achieve this. Yeah, but I mean, this is so profoundly important for people to understand that we're in this symbolic, sorry, this statistical wave right now. And right. the next big wave is coming and it's going to be about this fusion of the old symbolic approach updated for a new age with the current statistical approach. We're going to hear a lot more about, you know, neurosymbolic AI. Um, and just as you say, you know, and I love this comparison to the human brain. Right. And we'll talk a bit about that in a second. You know, our brains do both. So right. if the dream is a thinking machine, a machine that is, is in some way comparable to, to the capabilities of the human brain, you would expect you have to have both approaches. That's right. Who else is positioned to win? I know you have some interesting thoughts on that. You know, I mean, OpenAI must be thinking about this. DeepMind must be thinking about it. Who, who else? I think um, OpenAI and Google and so on, primarily because of their business models, are focused on modalities like text and images, because that's where the large amounts of data lie. You need that to build the statistical models. But if you think in terms of when neurosymbolic methods are required, it's probably going to be in domains where you do not have such large scale data. And I think we probably the dark horses are going to be companies that are working with data. They are working with databases. So I would say Oracle is an example of a company that is working with databases. So, I mean, if you look at most enterprise customers, a lot of the data is, they do have documents and images, of course, but a lot of the data are in relational databases like Oracle. Um, and there are, of course, other companies as well. But if companies like Oracle can take some of the bones of the statistical revolution, combine that with the, new, the, the symbolic um, components and have a neurosymbolic solution, that can mimic how, let's say, human data analysts work with these, with these databases. Uh, Databricks would be another example, but these would be the kind of dark horses, not just Google and OpenAI, where a lot of what they are developing are probably going to be commoditized to a uh, large extent. But again, you know, we can never tell how much things can be commoditized because if you think about Google search, why wasn't search commoditized? Why is Google 
still so predominant in search because that's just retrieving um, relevant web pages from a corpus of web pages. We know the technology. Why aren't there uh, a million competitors? So I don't want to say that I'm sure things will be commoditized because um, there are network effects or there are not network effects, but I guess there are kind of if people are using something, they'll continue to do so. But I think that uh, companies that are going to push in this neurosymbolic direction for enterprise customers uh, and other customers, because again, if I think in terms of our own um, everyday lives, so we have our health uh, monitoring devices and all of those are numbers. So I want my AI to understand me in all my numeric glory. And uh, for that, we need neurosymbolic models. Right. And I mean, Oracle are fascinating, you know, obviously tech giant, but not, not one that people Im would immediately step to when you talk about the future of AI. So many of us will have heard that here first, and we will be watching Oracle and this, and this neurosymbolic wave that's coming with great interest. And as you say, it's going to be super interesting because, of course, OpenAI is, you know, is trained on a massive amount of text that was just sort of free floating out there that they could just grab. And that's now somewhat controversial, but essentially they just hoovered up a whole ton of like human culture and used mm -hmm. it to train this, this model. Um, there isn't necessarily the same giant numeric data set, right, just floating around out there. So it's going to be the people that have access to those kinds of data sets exactly. that are positioned to win here. Right? Exactly. exactly. That's right. Yeah. 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 And so that that's where someone like Oracle comes in. And, you know, if they have a ton of structured numerical data that they can train mm -hmm. on, even if they train something that only people using, you know, Oracle databases can use, that's still massive. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Okay, look, it's just been, so, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, we could go on for another hour. It's such a fascinating conversation and we must have you back because the unfolding of this big third wave, which mm -hmm. I don't think, which I don't think many people yet are aware of, but is coming and is so important. I think it's a fascinating story to track mm -hmm. and I'd love us to track it you know, through the year, through through the next few years. I know many people out there will be watching and wondering on something you said earlier, or, or one of the themes you touched on earlier, which is, look, <clears throat> excuse me, this, this kind of mirrors the way the human brain evolved. You know, we have this underlying statistical approach, right. uh, but then we evolved this sort of uh, symbolic representational intelligence to and human intelligence is about both. That's right. Does that mean that this fusion of statistical and symbolic is the route to the fabled AGI, you know, a truly generalized human-like intelligence and then even super intelligence? Right. Um, I am, um, uh, you know, so th there's a joke, right, where they say that if, you don't have any idea when something's going to occur. Say it's going to be 20 years out, going to be 30 years <laughs> out. And so you have all of these surveys that say, that researchers say that, oh, it's 20, 30 years out. Uh, 
you should always take that with a grain of salt because whenever somebody says something is 20, 30 years out, they are essentially saying, I have no idea, right? So maybe it'll occur, maybe it won't. I think understanding um, the kind of human intelligence or even it doesn't need to be human, having a completely general intelligence is a very, very ill-defined thing. I mean, being able to understand language and images, ChatGPT or large language models can already do that. And that is a general intelligence to some extent, I would say. Um, but it's still, I would say, very far from the kind of general intelligence that we would associate with humans. So I think AGI in the very ill-defined sense that people have in mind is very, very far away. I would in fact make the bold claim that it's not 20, 30 years away, it's 100 years away. Because if you again think about the waves of AI, we had the first wave that mirrored the computing revolution. Um, and then you had the second wave, the statistical revolution, which um, again, you know, a, a lot of it was uh, developed over decades even prior to the development of computers because the field of statistics is much, much older. And regression was developed by Galton in the late 19th century, for instance. But I would find it interesting that regression came after calculus. It's a more subtle, statistical associations are more subtle uh, to develop algorithms to, to infer those are more subtle than even calculus. But that took so many years, I wanted to say, because, you know, now we are coming up to this third wave, which is also to flesh this out fully is going to take many decades. We will come up with solutions, don't get me wrong, but to fully flesh that out is going to take decades. And that's just three waves. And it seems hubristic to say that that's all we need, right? To, to This is what we can see presently, but there are things like, um, for instance, our working memory. So here is a mystery. Our working memory in the prefrontal cortex can only handle 10 symbols at a time. Why is that? What is so critical to having 10 symbols? That cannot just be a capacity thing because our brains can handle a lot of things. Why? So we have no idea, right? And we are, there's just so much you don't understand. And I imagine that there's going to be, you know, five, six waves of AI, you know, it's going to take hundred years. So it's yeah. probably a problem for our grandchildren. Probably. Right. A fascinating perspective. And certainly it feels to me that the, that the reflected light this journey is throwing on the nature of human intelligence and sort of essentially how much of that we don't understand um, is, is also a thrilling part of the of the picture. But look, Pradi, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely fascinating conversation. Where online, if anywhere, can people learn more about you and follow your work? Um, my website uh, is where um, all of my research is available. I just came onto Twitter a couple of days ago. <laughs> well, you have, a, you have some fun in store. Welcome. <laughs> right. So uh, it's um, not it's not always, you know, it's not only highly civilized uh, uh, and uh, sort of intelligent conversation about machine learning. I hate to tell you, <laughs> but it can be a lot of fun. Right. Right. So it's all 
So I guess it's in the second wave. It's, it's all in the statistical associations. So not- <laughs> <laughs> well, he's training his own model, isn't he, Grok? Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, we'll see how that plays out as well, especially with an election coming up. But okay, so your website, people can Google you, find your website, check out the fascinating work you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and like I say, please come back uh, in future because we will be tracking, of course, continuing to track this incredible AI moment we're living through, where it's heading, what it means for all of us as professionals, as investors, as human beings, what it means for the for the economy at large out there. We'll be continuing to track all that and the exponential age theme on Real Vision all through this year. And I cannot wait. It's going to be a fascinating ride. But for now, Pradeep Ravi Kumar, thanks so much for joining us, joining us and everyone out there. See you soon. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in engrave.io shop with the code RealVision.